I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. In 2019 in the United States, more than 10 million children lived in poverty. That's more than one out of every seven child. And these statistics have likely gotten worse since the onset of the recession due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Children who grow up in poverty start life with two strikes against them. A 2019 report from the National Academy of Sciences concluded that child poverty causes physical and mental health problems and results in worse educational outcomes, worse employment outcomes, and a greater likelihood of risky behavior, delinquency, and criminal behavior in adolescence and adulthood. So there are clearly wide societal benefits, not to mention deep ethical reasons for reducing child poverty. That National Academy report suggests that the child poverty rate in the United States could be cut in half in 10 years. One of the authors of that report is my guest on Econofact Chats, Hillary Hoynes. Hillary is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Among other notable honors, she's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, has served on the American Economic Association's Executive Committee and the Advisory Committee for the National Science Foundation. And in 2014, she received the Carolyn Shaw Bell Award from the Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Profession. Hillary, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Hillary, there's a saying that the poor will always be among us. But is in this case, have poverty rates been declining over time? And more specifically for today's conversation, what's happened to the rates of child poverty over time? Well, thanks for that question. Um, I think as we'll talk about, uh, poverty rates do not have to be among us. Um, there are things that policy can do to address them in a, in a very strong and robust way. But to speak to the um, issue of child poverty or poverty more generally in America over the decades that we've been measuring it, um, essentially per talking about child poverty, um, you know, we could sort of describe the period since the early 1960s when we first started measuring poverty as being periods of quite rapid progress um, in episodes, uh, followed by periods of, of stagnation. So in the most recent time periods, we saw quite dramatic reductions in child poverty in the starting in the early to mid 1990s through the end of that strong uh, economic expansion of the late 1990s, followed by uh, a decade or more of relative stagnation of child poverty uh, with some improvement in child poverty near the very last few years leading into the COVID crisis. Um, so that sort of describes um, uh, the lay of the land where, you know, there's kind of two things that seem to be most prominent when we see periods of declines in poverty. Either 
expansions to policies that directly target reducing poverty, and second, our very strong labor markets, in particular in the time period where we see wage growth uh, in a strong labor market. We have an Econofact memo with Jeff Fuhrer about the Fed's new framework, which is an attempt to allow the economy to run hotter for longer to help lower inequality and would also lower poverty rates. Hillary, how does the United States match up with other countries when it comes to rates of child poverty? Are we an outlier? Yes, in short, we are an outlier, uh, as we are in so many things with respect to inequality in the United States. Um, so there are two things that we see very strikingly in the data. One is that poverty rates are uh, consistently higher in the United States than they are in other countries, particularly in OECD comparison countries, although less so for the elderly. For elderly Americans, our poverty rates are more on par uh, with other countries. Is that because um, of Social Security? Primarily because of Social Security. So in fact, you know, to get back to your earlier question about what has happened to poverty rates over time, back in the early 60s, when we first started measuring poverty rates, the elderly was the kind of demographic group with the highest poverty rates in America. And then there was quite dramatic expansions in Social Security in the mid to late 60s and early 70s. And those poverty rates just absolutely plummeted. And today we're in a place where the highest kind of demographic group in poverty rates is children. So the, the, the kind of pattern has really changed. So, you know, part of what we can talk about today is that policy matters. So. Um, we have higher poverty rates in the United States for children uh, than in uh, countries, comparison countries. And we also spend less in turn on uh, kind of family assistance uh, as a percent of GDP. So we're an outlier in higher poverty rates and in lower spending. And, and those things are obviously related to one another. I imagine that the overall child poverty numbers for the United States that you're citing mask big differences by race and ethnicity. Is that correct? Uh, yes, um, it very much reflects, um, you know, the, the pattern of disadvantage that we see more generally in the United States. So we see quite higher rates of poverty among children uh, who are black, uh, Latinx, uh, or also you see patterns where uh, children who live in families with parents with lower education levels, um, and non-citizen parents, um, uh, children who are in families with non-citizen parents, those are the groups where we tend to see the highest rates of poverty among children in the United States. In the introduction, I alluded to some of the consequences of child poverty. Can you elaborate on that short list that I mentioned? Well, that's an area where our National Academy of Sciences report really dug into the evidence. Um, and we've long seen a strong correlation uh, between uh, child poverty, um, family resources and childhood and you know, life cycle outcomes for the children. Uh, but it's only been you know, much more recently that we've really accumulated a body of evidence um, that really shows quite strikingly um, the causal link between the lack of resources and adverse outcomes. And there are a wide range of outcomes. So we see that children that are raised in families that, have, that are poor tend to do worse in school 
Um, they tend to have worse health outcomes. Uh, they tend to have lower rates of educational, uh, completed education, uh, lower earnings in adulthood. Um, so it's, you know, lower, um, you know, higher rates of mortality. It's, it's quite a striking pattern across the life cycle um, that, you know, a, a growing body of evidence is showing us that this is something that is causally related to income, as opposed to the many things that in the United States that we see correlated with that, neighborhoods, schools, and other factors that we know also contribute to uh, intergenerational uh, outcomes. So I had Land Pritchett on the, um, on the show, and he was talking about poverty, but in terms of international poverty. And he said, there aren't poor people as much as poor places, that people growing up in certain places are very disadvantaged, and regardless of their own abilities. And I guess that's what you're getting at with causal links, right? It's not that people are inherently sort of targeted or will end up being poor because of who they are. It's because of the circumstances in which they grow up. That's what you mean by causal, right? That's exactly right. Um, so it, it, with respect to um, the characteristics of the family and the environment, um, the amount of resources that children have available to them for adequate nutrition and opportunity, um, as well as the other things that exist outside of the home environment, the schools, the neighborhoods, um, um, the segregation and other sorts of things that we see, we know are all part of um, what affects the lifetime trajectory. So that goes back to the quote I had at the beginning, the poor will always be among us. So I looked it up. That is a verse from the New Testament. And people often use that as an excuse for accepting poverty, but that's a misinterpretation. Jesus said the poor will always be among us, but he seemed to be referring to a verse in Deuteronomy that was immediately followed by, therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. How in modern societies are we open-handed towards the poor? Well, there's a, you know, a quite important range of policies that um, rich countries engage in to try to um, reduce poverty. Um, and um, many of those policies are targeted at families with children. Other policies might be targeted at other, um, you know, sort of vulnerable groups, the elderly, uh, the disabled, and so on. So with respect to um, our conversation about child poverty, um, in the United States, uh, sort of the most important programs that we have that are, you know, directly aimed at reducing child poverty are the sort of tax credits, um, the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit and the food stamp program. Those are the two programs that are the most important programs that we have in the United States. So we have some counterfact memos about the earned income tax credit. That's a cleverly designed program where you keep getting payments from the government, but they're reduced as you earn more. So it takes away some of the um, disincentives of working. And we also have quite a few programs on SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Ass um, Assistance uh, Program. That used to be called food stamps, and most people, I guess, still think of it as that. But we have a number of memos on both of those, and those have been shown to be effective. Have 
other programs been equally effective? Well, the key thing about the earned income tax credit and the SNAP programs is that they're both entitlements. And so what that means is that um, if there's demand, if folks are eligible for these programs, they are funded in full to meet demand. So in fact, the food stamp program is a really good example of a program that is um, very kind of counter cyclical in its structure that as, as incomes re are reduced and people fall into eligibility, the program meets demand without limits. So there's other parts of our social safety net that are not entitlements. So importantly, that is true of the housing um, assistance programs, housing vouchers, um, uh, which you know are a very important anti-poverty program for families that receive it. Uh, but I think only about one in five eligible families receive the housing vouchers. And some families you know, spend years and years on waiting lists to come up uh, uh, in eligibility. So it, it's, it's not necessarily about the structure of the program as being ineffective, but it's about the programs not being fully funded. Uh, but with respect to children, the two programs that are largest anti-poverty programs in the United States are the Earned Income Tax Credit and the SNAP program. After that actually comes SSI, which is a, a cash welfare program for disabled children and uh, adults, and then Social Security, uh, because many children live in families that have elders that are receiving Social Security and poverty is a family resource measure. And so interestingly, uh, those are the two policies that are the next most important anti-poverty programs in current U.S. policy for children. The National Academy of Sciences report that you co-authored that I referred to earlier discusses reducing child poverty by 50% 50, 50 in a decade. That seems like a really ambitious goal. Is it attainable? In a word, yes, it absolutely is attainable. Um, so to just to mention a little bit about our National Academy report, it was actually the, the statement of task for the committee was to advance policies that number one, were evidence-based, and number two, uh, could, could reduce child poverty by 50% and deep poverty, which is defined as having income below 50% of the poverty threshold, within 10 years. So we weren't contemplating policies that say, you know, preschool and improving education, which would improve poverty rates in the long run. We were explicitly given a statement of tasks to have short run um, uh, policy responses. So mostly we're talking about the social safety net and the, in the, in the um, solution space. And what we found was we advanced um, recommendations around what we called packages. That is groups of policies that together would reduce child poverty by half. Um, and in particular, uh, we advanced um, a combination of expanding the earned income tax credit and SNAP, as we talked about, two programs that are you know, shown to be very effective and we should do more of. But we combined that with a uh, expanded child tax credit um, that in fact looks very similar to the child tax credit that was passed for one year in Biden's um, American Rescue Plan. Um, and the combination of those three policies that we advanced 
uh, our um, Urban Institute trim model uh, predicted would reduce child poverty by half uh, within 10 years. And so the Biden plan um, that came out as part of the American Rescue Plan and is now uh, embedded in the um, American Family Plan, the second right. infrastructure part two, continues uh, to, to uh, fund this expanded child tax credit for additional years. And so it is an extremely important policy change um, to the United States that gets us on par with many other advanced countries, uh, what are typically called child allowances in other countries. There's a lot of discussion now about work incentives, but also about the lack of childcare. There are also concerns about the lack of infrastructure, for example, adequate public transportation that enables people living in inner cities to get to jobs that are outside the city center. These issues have been obviously exacerbated by COVID. How does one address all these intersecting challenges? Is it insufficient to just take a piecemeal approach, even though that might be more politically viable? Well, I do think that a multifaceted approach is the most effective one. And so just to pull a few things out of your, your comments there, first of all, the biggest determinant of a family being poor is, is actually not what the, the policy um, uh, setting is. It's about how much earnings folks have. And so to the extent to which we build an infrastructure in this country that makes it possible for all families to be engaged in the labor market to the extent to which that is um, you know, desirable, we should be doing that. And that means childcare. That means um, having safe places for their children to thrive and make it easy to, to get to work, as you mentioned, around transportation. So earnings, earnings matters. Um, there is a lot of discussion around work incentives. Um, and we've got decades of evidence that really gives us a very clear idea about how different ways of trying to reduce poverty are going to influence, are likely to influence work along the way. And just to pull out one aspect of that, in this new expanded child tax credit that was part of the American Rescue Plan that is predicted to reduce child poverty by 40% or more this year, um, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's something very close to universal basic income for children. And what does that mean? Or at least a basic income for children. Um, the reason why it's very similar to that is that if you've got a family uh, that has a ch one child under the age of six, they are guaranteed through this program to get $3,600 per year, uh, half of it offered on a monthly basis. And it is not phased out until your income is uh, you know, $100,000 a year or more, depending on whether you're a married couple or a single uh, taxpayer. And it's phased out at a fairly uh, slow rate. Um, and so that means that you're not sort of, quote, taxed on, you know, dollar for dollar as you start to increase your work. So it really does sort of provide a floor. So within um, sort of labor economics parlance, this is a program that primarily is going to operate through an income effect. It's not changing the return to work 
because the, the tax credit doesn't change as your earnings increase until it gets fairly high up the income distribution. And so that design feature is very much, um, you know, advanced as a way to provide a floor without providing large work disincentives. So that gets to another point and a much broader point as, as it turns out. Some of the issues related to child poverty come down to the paternalism of the state. For example, should we just be giving parents money to help support their children as some of these new programs are doing? Or should funds be mandated to be used in certain ways? For example, for food, and even for only certain types of food. What's your view on the role of the state in determining how money provided to the poor should be spent? So my view on this is that if the market is working well, say the market for food, <laughs> then, um, or other kinds of targeted programs, then I think a less restrictive benefit structure is better. The more unrestricted the nature of the social safety net, the more families can decide for themselves what is the most important use of the funds. And um, it seems to me um, that the very paternalistic um, safety net for poor families with children in the United States, which, you know, interestingly, the safety net for the elderly is pretty cash oriented. Um, the so social security being very fundamental in that as addition, in addition to SSI, another cash benefit program for poor elderly. Um, but our, our social safety net for um, poor families with children has evolved to be quite paternalistic in the United States. And it seems to me that, I, that this is in part a reflection of the structural racism that has made its way into our policies. And this kind of uh, view that um, poor folks don't know how to make good decisions for themselves, and therefore we need to help guide them towards making those decisions. And I think that there's some rethinking about that as being wise policy. Um, and so I think we should really advance more unrestricted payments. And also um, the more paternalistic the program, the more administratively complex they are for families to engage with. And that we know reduces access um, and reduces access in ways that, that, are, that is not very equitable. Hillary, you mentioned wise policies. How has your research and the research of others helped shape anti-poverty programs or even affected the existence of these programs? Have the conclusions of research shifted over time? And if so, has this been matched by a concomitant shift in policies? Or is there enough variety in research results so politicians can basically cherry pick among them to support a policy that they would want anyway? That is a really great question that I have been thinking about quite a lot. Um, and um, I think I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, there will always be the possibility that people can cherry pick results. I mean, it's just, it's just rare that everything is gonna say, you know, X instead of not X. But we as researchers are, are it is necessary for us to provide the evidence that helps to make wise policy. So let me give you one concrete example of that. When I got my PhD in the early 1990s, and I've essentially been studying you know, poverty in America my entire career, 
Economists focused only on measuring the costs of these policies. And we are tend to spending most of our time talking about work disincentives, moral hazard, um, and thinking about the costs of the social safety net without really thinking about what the benefits were. And so if we present ourselves as quantifying the costs, and that's what we spend our time doing, it's a pretty unbalanced set of facts. And so, you know, during the kind of mid to late 1990s, led by amazing scholars like Janet Curry and John Gruber, people started to think about quantifying the benefits of social safety net programs. Um, and so that was a really important advance in the research. And that early work focused primarily on the contemporaneous benefits. So for example, if a mother has access to Medicaid when she's pregnant, how much more likely is her child when born to be of healthy birth weight? Um, so these very kind of important, but sort of short run measures, like you, you observe uh, giving more uh, food stamps to individuals and do they eat a healthier diet? Important, but short run. And where the work is really advanced in the last five to 10 years is in expanding our quantification of the benefits with a focus in the long run. And so for such a long time, um, all of the attention on these programs for poor families was focused on the parents. Are the parents gonna work? Are they good parents? And I think by this new research that quantifies the following question, if we give families more resources when children are young, how does that change their life trajectory? How does that change their completed education and what uh, their uh, health and economic well-being is in adulthood? That long-run lens and quantification of the benefits and more expansive view of the benefits of social policy, I think may have allowed us to just change the focus a little bit in this policy space to remember that these are programs aimed at children as opposed to um, that sort of older um, emphasis on the behavior of the adults. And oh, I think that that's helped us advance the policy. Well, Hillary, thank you very much for that. And thank you for your research on this really important topic. And Thanks for your insights on child poverty, a topic that has deep consequences for both the economy and the moral standing of the country. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. The Conifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.